You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. And welcome to Rock Solid People, a podcast where I, Max King, the CEO of Ozcare Support, interview interesting and amazing individuals in the disability space. And today I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Guy Turnbull. And uh, Guy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how you doing, Max? Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, good. I, I, I wanted to try and read your biography from the Don Dunstan Foundation, but it's uh, it's too long and you've got too many accolades. So I'm going to start ah. with <laughs> that you've been involved in the cooperative and social enterprise sector for nearly 25 years, it's since 1988, and uh, you're a yep. serial entrepreneur former Managing Director of Care and Share Associates, which we'll talk about later, current Managing Director of Healthy Social Care, which is based out of Adelaide, and, uh, and have previously and also been very involved in, uh, in setting up RED, Rapid Enterprise Development Workshops. Uh, I've got so much to talk to you about. I'm so pleased that we've, uh, we've got you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to talk. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you got involved in the cooperative and social enterprise space? Um, well, I've started off as an academic. I'm a, my PhD is in geography. Um, and <laughs> right. actually got lost along the way. So, so the story essentially um, is I was researching the impact of youth uh, employment policy in the UK. Right and uh, the youth training scheme, as it was then, um, and why it worked in middle-class areas and why it didn't work in, in uh, working-class areas. And um, that's what my PhD is on. And I ended up going undercover um, into a hard-to-let housing estate in the north of England. Right. Um, and my cover, and you can do this now for research ethics, but... Back in the Wild West of the 80s, anything went. <laughs> and um, my cover was helping set up a, a housing cooperative. Right. So uh, a co-op owned by, by uh, people who rented the housing to, to try and resolve some of the housing issues there. Um, there was 90% unemployment and it was a really run-down area. And I just got absolutely blown away by the the co-op sector, right. the idea that you could run a business in an ethical manner that was owned and controlled by by the workers. Yep. So I gave up my academic career, um, managed to blag a job in a local authority, setting up co-ops, which I did for three or four years, and then um, set up my first co-op business doing consultancy in 95 right and um, and actually the first co-op i ever set up was a, a goat smoking co-op <laughs> nothing to do with disability at all um so it was four farms that came together to own a, a smokery in a farm shop wow wow okay so i did not expect a, a few of those things i did not expect a, and a phd in geography but, and so from that, and so we, we were, were doing quite reactive business development for, for a number of years. We were a call for five consultants. And um, I suddenly realized, why isn't there a big 
co-op in the care sector. Because we know engaged employees deliver the best possible care. Yep. So why not share ownership uh, with the workforce? And why not, instead of us just reacting to inquiries for legal advice or, or business planning or, or fundraising, why don't we find a small care co-op and scale it up? And, and um, by that time, um, I was friends with uh, somebody called Margaret Elliott, who operated uh, a care cooperative in Sunderland, and we essentially took that model and replicated it into CASA. That's the background. And for those of us who don't know the basics and the principles of this sort of housing co-op, can you can you give I mean, can you give us a, a short description of sort of how it works and, and what the principles are and, and what's its what's its aim, what's its goal? Well, well, the aim of any co-op is a cooperative is a venture, an autonomous organisation that is owned on a one on by membership, and the members have one vote each. So, some international uh, recognised principles about cooperation. So, it's um, open membership, democratic control, one member, one vote. Economic participation, so the members are economically engaged in the operation of the business or the organisation. So for the housing co-op, what we were trying to do was take a big local authority estate and give it to a cooperative, which was run by the tenants. Yeah. Okay. So the tenants actually um, have one vote. They, they owned the stock collectively. They were involved in tenants, new tenant selection. They were involved in where the money was spent yeah. in terms of repairs, renewals. So that kind of, um, it's an enterprise that trades commercially, but gives its profit back to the membership. It sounds like this is something that we should all be doing in every in every environment. <laughs> I'm very lucky in that I've, Never worked for a for-profit business right. or a, a business owned by external shareholders. Let's say yeah, so. Yeah. I'm a great believer that business can be great fun, and you need to make a reasonable profit. But it's what you do with that profit and um, how you recycle it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. Um, I, and but I can't say the same, unfortunately. Yes, it's uh, but um, look, I, I I think that's amazing. So the model that Care and Share Associates, uh, you know, you, you pioneered in the UK. Have you replicated that model here in Australia? Are there the same rules and regulations around the cooperatives? Yes and no. So so just shall I briefly explain about how Casa operated? So so we set it up in two thousand four. Uh, and at my exit at 2018, we were delivering 24,000 hours a wow. week of care. So turning over about 17 million pounds, about 30 odd million dollars, had 700 workers and delivered across nine territories in the north of wow. England. And um, the way it worked, it was a, a company that was owned in majority, 85% or so, by what's called an employee ownership trust. So the employees became members automatically of the trust, and the trust 
distributed profit back to the employees. Every quarter, we would share a third of our profit with on a territory basis. So some of our territories did better than others. And then annually, we shared a third of our profit tax-free. You can do this in the UK. If you're owned over 51% by an EOT, you can give profit back to the workers on a tax-free basis. But it's not just about profit share. It's about the workforce understanding how yeah, business operates. So, so they understand it's about capacity, it's about quality, it's about, it's about being able to pick up more work while you recruit more staff. So it's about teaching people about those levers, understanding that they might have to take on more shifts in order to grow the business, but at the same time hold their manager to account for recruiting more staff. So it's that kind of kind of model. It's it's funny you mentioned. I'm just going to say it's funny you mentioned dissertations because my my dissertation, well, you yours yours was a PhD, mine was a university one, but. Um, my, mine was about uh, the unions and the management of car industry in the UK. And it was a similar similar concept around oh, right. who was at fault for the decline of the UK car industry. And essentially it was, uh, you know, my, my view came down to in the end, it was, you know, I thought I was going to be quite anti-union, but it turned out to be quite, quite anti-management in the end because I was like, well, they didn't include anyone. They didn't tell anyone how it works. They just wanted to keep all the, all the, all the, all the profits for themselves. And that's, detrimental so uh, it's yeah it's 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 amazing when you get that uh, that full circle of of clarity around how a business works and what levers are pulled and as you say keeping people accountable then it starts Mm. to being a big as you say mentioned it it becomes an engaged workforce and therefore the results flow from there and research piece after research piece has shown near nhs uk and elsewhere that engaged employees deliver better quality care you know, and one way of really engaging with your workforce is to get everybody to understand how the business operates and give them a, them a stake in give it. Give them a say in how it's running and, and actually value their opinion 100%. So, uh, and I always start every induction, and, and I still do inductions here, um, is it's called the three column game. So, uh, yeah, three columns. Okay, what's important for the business, and it, you know, and the new employees kind of work it out that you know, delivering profit, delivering quality, getting a good reputation, blah blah blah. And then I say, okay, what's important for you? What keeps you awake at night? And they want to be valued. They want the tools to be able to do a good job. They want to be well paid. They want security. Yeah. I go, well, actually, in order for you to get that, the business has to do that. So what actions do you need to do to allow both of those things to happen? Uh, And the penny suddenly drops that, actually, yeah. So I need to turn up on time. I need to deliver quality. I need to engage in training. I need to, you know... And once you start building that kind of culture, that kind of mindset, that actually, and and this is the important thing about employee-owned businesses, is that they know the money will go back to them and delivering a better service and delivering better quality care. I've 
never met any support worker who really genuinely wakes up every morning and thinks, I'm going to deliver a really shit no. day of care today. On the whole. On the whole. In general. We, we, yeah, we, we tried to, to root those people out before. And, 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 and to be fair, way. you know, that's, that's, that's generally human nature is not, not you know, we're not wired that way yeah. to go to go, I'm really going to screw this up today. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the thing about spot work is you, you actually do have the opportunity every day to really change yeah. somebody's life. Yeah. And, and it's rethinking what, what support is all about. And it is rethinking what your role is in that. I think, well, you know, I think maybe we're going to talk about the NDS later. But, you know, I think one of the challenges of any consumer-led care system where you you essentially abrogate responsibility uh, and give a, a bunch of money to individuals, you sorted out, you buy your own care. You know, we're not really going to worry about compliance or expansion. And one of the issues about that kind of fragmentation is any kind of workforce strategy can go out the window. But because you're fragmenting it so much. And you're losing that capacity for control and, and, and determination. But at the same yeah. time, you're offering a different sort of control and choice and control to, to the participants. It's a challenge. Yeah, but, but but there's always a balance, isn't there? But because I've, I've, you know, and, you know, I'm operating a, a kind of Bjorksorg-inspired uh, provider in Adelaide now called Viva, Viva Mutual. I wanted to call Casa Viva, by the way, but I got outvoted by the other three founders. That's one of the problems with co-ops. <laughs> Well, but one of the funny things is, I never, I never smarted about it. You know, it was a majority decision. So, um, but yeah, I got my own way eighteen years later. <laughs> now, tell me. So, fast forward. You, you've come to Adelaide. You were the Don Dunstan Thinker in Residence. Uh, but and I'd love to talk about that. But I actually, I'm keen, I'm keen to understand what what uh, what are you doing now in Australia, and what can we look forward to seeing you achieving. Well, I'm do, doing two things. Well, three things, really, uh, which, which came out slightly from um, the Don Dunstan uh, residency, but, but, you know, I think they're, they're more kind of rooted in that. So, so well, back, back when I was on that housing estate pretending to be a cooperator, <laughs> my career was going to be a geography right. teacher, lecturer, academic. And I never envisaged I would be running a $35 million business employing 700 people. And somewhere along that journey, I and I never saw and, and don't see myself as having a disability and actually didn't really get involved in. I got involved in the care sector because it suited the cooperative yeah. business model, yeah. not the other way around. Um, and um, and somewhere along that journey, I realised there was probably a relationship between entrepreneurship and okay. disability um, around resilience, ingenuity, passion, 
determination. Sorry, quite a few of the entrepreneurial traits. Um, so, so uh, you know, there, there's a relationship with um, enterprise and disability and entrepreneurial traits around stubbornness, ingenuity, passion, ambition, determination, focus, all those kind of things. And um, so as a kind of passion sideline, I set up an organisation with a friend of mine called Keith Bates, who actually set up the first co-op in the UK entirely owned by people with intellectual disability called uh, The Clean Sweep. We set up this programme called Rapid Enterprise Development, or RED, which is essentially accessible, an accessible workshop to teach people with intellectual disability and others how to write uh, a business plan. It's based on games and glitter, and um, it, it essentially takes participants for a kind of shark tank over um, two half days or so where they pitch their ideas uh, against each other. Uh, and, you know, uh, and it's about working out a hobby and what support structure they've got and what the market says and what assets they've got. And it's that kind of matrix. So one guy we, we helped um, set up a kind of gardening service in, in the southwest of England. And um, so so he is a very, very charming, amenable guy. Uh, and the nature of his kind of intellectual disability is completely passionate about plants and gardening and very quiet wow. and very unassuming. Um, right. and, um, and we found a niche for him, uh, Patrick, so, so we 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 essentially established. Um, so, so the way it works is we take a person in a circular spot, build up a business plan, and because um, it, it's based on this whole idea that, have, you know, <laughs> if you want to define happiness, it's you know it, it's some somewhere to live, someone to love, and something to do, and. People with lived experience sometimes struggle with the something to do bit. Um, yep. Because, we, you know, most of us find work as a something to do and it kind of signifies certain things about yourself. So, um, Absolutely. So, and so tell me, said, that, so Red, Red has been uh, something that you created in the UK and have you brought that to Australia? Are yeah, we, we've secured an NDIA grant. A couple of years ago to run it in Adelaide, so it's been running ever since. So we've just, and then we secured, um, after the first year, we secured another three years. So wow. so we run, um, yeah, so, so we have an NDI grant to run the, uh, the workshops, the business coaching, and the um, kind of, you know, given COVID, we've had to, once we're pivot, a bit and um so we've created an online store and we we've put a lot more into the online marketing support we provide but yeah, yeah there's some examples here this is melissa's robot melissa, right. melissa wanted to um 
wanted to be a clothing designer. Um, right. But she draws robots. Like we just put them onto T-shirts. Hey. Yeah, well, for those of you who can't see, we've got a T-shirt with a white T-shirt with a robot on it. So this is one of your clients from Red who wants yes. to basically be a she wants to be a designer and she's she likes drawing robots. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and she serves them at markets and from her website, and um, she serves them for three five dollars a go, and she makes about ten dollars a go. And she said to her support coordinator the other day, "Tell me about your profit and loss." <laughs> Brilliant! That <laughs> was very, very funny. <laughs> and, and Guy, I remember when I when I first met you, I remember learning about Red or or talking to you about Red and thinking that's something that I really I'm sort of quite envious about because being in that sort of startup space is something that I think it would be really exciting and really interesting. And um, one of my associates who works for Oscar Support in, in the Adelaide market is also involved. We've been discussing uh, utilizing her skill set in the micro business sense. So I, I, I know this is not a conversation for now, but I think there's some, there's some liaisons that we need to do between Red and Oscar Support that's going to accelerate that whole whole marketplace. And we'd love to try and work out what Red is doing and how we can take that to a, another market, whether it's in Sydney or 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 where else? I don't know where, whether you're amenable to partnerships like that, but we'll take that offline. But very, um, very, so much, very much, I'm a I'm a corporator. Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, you have to be if you're in the co-op space. Surely you yeah. have to be co-op. <laughs> and um, and so, look, you um, you know, you you've obviously that's a, a pretty fabulous achievement. One of the things that we would be keen to understand, because the people that listen to the podcast are interested, I guess, in entrepreneurship and, and how businesses in the NDIS work. What what are your top three tips, I guess, to help businesses grow and you know meet the needs of the sector in the disability space? I, th- I think the first thing you you, you need is ambition. Uh, I, I think you 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 need to think quite big. I've always thought big. I've always wanted to, uh, you know, not just sit up a K-Cop, but the biggest one in the UK. Or So I think it's that kind of ambition to, and it doesn't have to be about scale. It's about being the most innovative or most different, or or you, you need something unique about yourself, which actually people can, uh, can grab onto. And secondly, you need... You need the passion. You, you you really need to be passionate about what you do. Is about you know in this um, sector, it, you know the decisions you make and the things to to do really impact on every other people's lives every day. You need to take that very seriously. And um, but and thirdly, you need to have fun. I mean, I, I'm a great believer in having fun. If you don't have fun, I, w- I would go and work for somebody else. <laughs> you know, well, not, not take the risk in the long hours and this, that, and the other. Because um, you know, if if you're, if, you know, running your own business isn't whether it be a co-op or, or any other kind, it isn't isn't walking the park. It's um, it's Great fun and very rewarding, but it's also very challenging and um, very consuming. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, big ambitions, passion, and uh, have fun. Yeah, no, I like that. 
And, and, and if, I, if I could stick a fourth in, you, yeah, you, of course. You need to have really good systems as well. Good CRM. So do a really boring one as well. You know, I mean, if you know, I don't know how people used to run kind of care businesses without decent rostering software and CRM. So I just don't understand how it could be done. You probably have to have an army like, of people to do it. Yeah, well, one of those, you remember those accounting books with the ledger spreadsheets yeah, and all yeah. that before Excel yeah, and accounting yeah. packages? Yeah, I think it's something like that. Um, I'm going to just flip the, flip it around. And this wasn't on the list of questions I sent you, but I'm really keen to understand. I want to talk to you about the Don Dunstan, what that was for you. But I also want to talk to you about the future of the NDIS and what your views are on scheme and the sustainability of it and, and where it's going. So I don't know which you'd like to unpick first, whether you want to start with the Don Dunstan. I'll, and what start, you, I'll what you, start with the Don Dunstan one, which is, yeah, well, <laughs> it was it was very fortuitous. So, so I um, accidentally ran into my current wife, uh, or my, 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 I shouldn't say current wife, should, should I? I, say current, I, I current wife sounds like it's a temporary measure. <laughs> I've been married three times, so um, yeah, and um, never again. So Melinda and I met in 2013, and I was uh, just coming recently divorced, and um I was kind of tracking down some friends. I was living in the I was in the UK, and um, a friend of mine had immigrated to Adelaide with her husband, had a couple of kids, and I tracked it down on Facebook, and um, and I didn't really, I'd never used Facebook before, so I didn't know really how it worked. So I thought I was having a conversation with Jackie, but actually all her friends could see it. And um, <laughs> and suddenly her friend Melinda popped into the conversation saying how silly I was having four kids and and two ex-wives. So so we got talking and um I, I just by chance had a, a speaking job in New Zealand later that year. So I came via Adelaide. And by by that time we met. By the, and by that, that time we we grown quite close online, so we called off in the rest of history. And a really funny um, story about disability, because I don't see myself as disabled. So I never really mentioned it on our, our Skype talks. And it was so long ago, I actually didn't have a camera. Right. <laughs> and... We've been talking for two or three months. And, and you know, the, being a man, I put off and put off and put off. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the week was coming when I, I was going to be arriving in Adelaide for the first time, when we were going to meet for the first time. And I wasn't sure whether she knew I had a lived experience of disability or not. Right. And uh, I said to my sister, do you think I should tell her? Or, or do you think I should just turn up and go, ta-da! <laughs> anyway, I did tell her. And it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done, actually. I think it's describing over an email or, or by phone what uh, lived disability means to to me, but because yep. there's no, it, 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 
it's like seeing salt, you know, there's something to find in a way. So that, that was it. Anyway, so, so, so that relationship started. And um, I'm fortunate enough because I'm, I'm well known for CASA and in the co-op sector. And I've done some work for the School of Social Entrepreneurs who had an office in Sydney as well. So uh, I managed to find the odd uh, kind of consultancy or speaking uh, events to, to essentially fund my flights for a few years. Perfect. And things gathered. Um, and then um, I got this email um, from the Don Dunstan Foundation about being thinker-in-residence in Adelaide. And I rang up uh, Melinda and said, is this spam? <laughs> and for those of us who don't know, what is the Don Dunstan Foundation? Well, the Don Dunstan, well, Don Dunstan was a premier um, yeah. of South Australia, a very innovative, forward-thinking, liberal in terms of wanting to um, promote homosexuality, women's rights, and a whole range of other things way before any of the other states did. And a true, um, true um, yeah, an amazing premier. And the foundation was established, which was about bringing creative thinkers from around the world to to and seed new ideas. So there's been a whole program of um, residences, and I was asked to be um, the thinker residence in 2018 to try and talk about the role of cooperatives and reforming the health and care sector in some way. Yeah, wow. So, uh, and, it, you know, it was a really short, typically thinking residences uh, about three or four weeks length and they end up with a narration. Mine was slightly different because the, the previous thinker um, had some family issues. So I think I had to do t- two loads. That suited me fine. Yeah, right. You get worked to an interview life. It was, um, yeah, an amazing experience. I, I, I mean, I, I literally at one one day I had a presentation to the cabinet. Uh, that's it. I had a breakfast meeting at half six. A presentation to the cabinet after that. Two or three workshops. Master class. And then an interview with Sky News. <laughs> well, so just a, just a normal walk in the park. But it was just <laughs> that kind of constant kind of, but you know, great fun. And so you've done your Don Dancer Foundation. You've published your reports. I, I'd be keen to get your take on the NDIS, where we sit now, and where we're, where the scheme is going. Because obviously, well, it's- I, I think that there's, you know, I think as a, I was saying. At the top of the uh, the conversation, one of the problems I've always had with, you know, I think consumer-led health and care systems sound great in practice, but because they um, you know give power, ownership, and control to the individuals to to make their own decisions and take control of their, their own care. 
Uh, and, you know, if you, you accept the social model of disability, the idea that you control your sport actually does, does address some of the issues of dis disability. However, you, you know, we know because of the low level of NDIS utilisation in poor communities, you've got a kind of inverse care where you've created a system where middle-class families are much better at navigating it than people who are less educated. And that brings me right back to my, my PhD, which was essentially about working out why youth employment schemes work better in middle-class areas. <laughs> and more than that, I went to a mainstream school from the age of five. I was born in 1965, where everybody with cerebral palsy got put in a special school. There's no integration at all. And the reason I went to a normal school is my mother just took me to the, the local school on day one and said, educate, my, educate my child. Well, I think we can all applaud your mother for that and also thank her for that. And it's a neat dovetail, actually, back to, as you say, where you started with your surreptitiously uh, getting, getting employed in the community to, to work out why, the, uh, why, why, as you say, it was working for middle-class communities and not for, for lower-class communities. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I think the NDIS, as an ambition and as a scheme and the $22 billion and the... It, yeah, has to be applauded, you know. And, and when the NDIS works well, it can transform people's lives. What people uh, don't realise is articulating choice and control is sometimes very difficult. Uh, and if you don't put the right amount of brokerage in, the right amount of advocacy into the system, then it, it's very difficult to do. Well, I think it was the interview I did with Sam Payer from The Growing Space yeah. earlier on in this podcast, and she mentioned that there was supposed to be a duopoly around the NDIS, but also the community information linkages and capacity building in the community, and that had not happened. And as a result of that not happening, but the stripping away of this, the state-by-state, -state, um, you know, I guess, fundamental supports, there's actually a, there is that dichotomy at the moment which, which exists where, as you mentioned, if you know how to navigate the system, you're okay. But if you don't, you're actually worse off now than you were previously, which is a, a situation which none of us want. What is the solution to that, though? Well, beyond, beyond, if we, well, the projects that came out of the thinkers reported it was to create a joint venture cooperative between consumers on the one hand who can learn from each other and micro providers on the other, and then if you can work out who wants to buy what, but they, they can't buy it, it can map market intelligence, it can see where the demand is, it can aggregate brokerage. Uh, I think that can be a solution. And, and actually, we're, we're developing a hybrid version of that at the moment called Strong and Capable. Strong and Capable. Strongandcapable.com.au, which the DSS, gave a grant to Carers SA to Auspice, and um, I'm just the co-op advisor on that. The idea is you create a cooperative owned by people with lived experience and 
uh, NDI's plan. And there's a, a mentoring line in the price guide. I think it's 40 bucks an hour. And the idea is that the more experienced NDI's participants who have successfully navigated the NDIS mentor new participants. I've never heard of that line, Ison, but it's interesting to see. And uh, wow, strong and capable. I mean, I'd love to to to, to unpick this with you in the future. I, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast today. Yeah. It's been an amazing time talking to you, Guy. I, I, I always enjoy your company. I will be down in Adelaide again soon, and I will look you up. But I wanted to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Guy Turnbull. Thank you, Max. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.